Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's podcast, we're going back to the Cold War to look at Soviet active measures. We're joined by Todd Leventhal, who was the State Department's sole counter-misinformation officer during the last years of the Cold War. He worked there from 1987 through until 2010. If you're enjoying the work that we do on this podcast, please support us by becoming a subscriber. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Todd, welcome to The Dry Cleaner Cast. Thank you. Now, uh, before we begin, I know you have a disclaimer that you need to say, so I'll, I'll give you an opportunity just to say that now. Yes, it's very important. These are my personal views based on my experience over the last 30 years countering Russian, Soviet, and other disinformation. So these are not the views of the State Department where I work uh, and should be taken as simply my own personal views. Well, talk before we begin, can you just tell us a bit about yourself and your work at the State Department? Sure. Well, I became interested in uh, Soviet affairs back in 1972, actually, when I, I traveled there as a young political innocent. And then, uh, you know, studied about it at school, worked for Voice of America for a while doing radio broadcasts, writing radio shows on Soviet Union. And then I got this great opportunity back in 1987 to work with a guy named Herb Romerstein, who was working countering Russian disinformation. And Herb was uh, quite a character. He was a, a kid communist from the 1950s, and, or late, late 1940s, I should say, from age 15 to 17 in New York. And he became an anti-communist when the uh, Korean War started. But he'd followed uh, Soviet and other propaganda since then, so for decades. So he knew this area very well, and he was a great, great boss. It was a very exciting time. Excellent. Well, what we're going to do today, we're going to talk a bit, we're going to take a trip back to the Cold War in which East and West were pitted against one another. And Todd, your job was to monitor and record the sort of false stories about the United States that originated from Russian sources. And these false stories are what we call disinformation, and they're part of what we call in spy parlance, active measures. So can you, can you just tell us what active measures are and how, how it originated as a strategy against the West? Well, active measures is a KGB term, actually. Uh, we've taken it and used it in the West in a slightly broader manner, but it's a special, uh, has a special meaning in KGB parlance, and it means simply, uh, you know, to encapsulate it, covert influence operations. In other words, propaganda might be something you'd openly say on Radio Moscow or whatever, RT now, but if you had somebody who was secretly working for the Russians or the Soviets, and they, uh, you know, voice their opinion as if it was only their opinion, but they're actually taking orders from Moscow. That's what makes it sort of an active measure, which can be true information. I mean, you know, uh, not everything is false, 
or it can certainly be disinformation. But the key aspect is the covert nature. So you think you're listening to a, one of the many voices in our society, but you're actually listening to what Moscow wants you to hear. And was there any particular sort of department in the Russian government at that time that was responsible for that? Yes, absolutely. They did it, you know, forever. I mean, from the beginning. But it was more idiosyncratic under Stalin. And there's a recreation of a 1930s handbook where they talk about misinformation. They have a chapter on misinformation. But in, uh, things became more bureaucratic under uh, Khrushchev. And in 1959, they formed Department D for disinformation as part of the KGB's first chief directorate, which is foreign intelligence. And that probably had, you know, 50-year people or 60 people, something like that. And then in 1970, that was expanded to a service, which is larger than a department service A for active measures. And uh, in the interim, they formed similar departments in the East European allies. Uh, for example, in 1964, they formed a similar department in Czechoslovakia. And each of these countries would have, you know, specific target countries they'd work on over, uh, under overall Soviet direction. Hmm. And these things weren't taken lightly, because if I'm right um, in remembering, I think it was in the 1980s, the CIA estimated the Soviet active measures, they were spending about $3 billion a year on them. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how you count it. If you look at all the expenditures of Radio Moscow and Novosti Press Agency and whatnot, yes, you could, you could add up to a figure but in, that's that large. But if you look at it in terms of the real specialists, the people who are uh, very sophisticated in this, who, uh, who design these things, you're, you're talking a few hundred people over different departments in the Soviet apparatus. And, um, I'm not sure what the number would be today, but it's the it's the skill with which it's done rather than the scale, uh, although both are important, that is really critical. Yeah. And what are the what was the goal of these sort of active measures? Well, it was it was simply to forward or to achieve whatever the goals of Soviet or now Russian foreign policy would be. For example, um, you know, it's it's well known today that NATO is the bulwark of uh, resistance, military uh, resistance, to what would be otherwise superior Russian power in Europe. So an obvious goal of both the Soviet Union and Russia is to weaken and, you know, if at all possible, destroy NATO. And the same with any, um, you know, Western organization or institution that poses an obstacle to them. Uh, beyond that, they're going to try to weaken the United States, discredit us, they're going to try to take any uh, existing tensions that exist, say, between the uh, United States and Europe or between two European countries and make those worse. And within each country, they're going to try to worsen um, grievances or tensions that would tend to paralyze decision making. So, uh, you know, there's a the fellow uh, old friend of mine, Ladislav Bitman, who's now um, who defected in 1968 from the Czechoslovak uh, Secret Service. He was the deputy head of their disinformation department from 64 to 66. He says it's like being a doctor who diagnoses all the maladies, all the weaknesses in the patient, and then tries to make everything worse instead of trying to cure them. Uh, this is the basic technique. You have to understand your target audience very well and what's going to, what their fears are, 
what their grievances are, and then you simply use true information if you have it or manufactured false information to try to make things worse. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, really, it's really quite disturbing. Yeah, and, and am I right in thinking some the propagandists themselves kind of believed in some of the information that they were peddling? Well, you know, I, it, that's very hard to say. I mean, people who live in that, that society have to make so many compromises with the truth um, for the sake of their own career interests that it, it's very hard to say what they believe and don't believe. Certainly, you know, some people will believe this nonsense, uh, and and they may believe it, but they may be just totally cynical and not care one iota whether it's true or not, as long as it uh, as it serves the larger interests of the institutions and the more particular interests of their careers. Yeah, this is probably a harder question to answer. But how effective was uh, were Soviet um, active measures and the sp- and the power to spread disinformation? How effective was it? Sure, I think you have to look at it in terms of effectiveness compared to the um, the input, how much effort it took. In other words, you know, these things are, are relatively cheap. If you've recruited a journalist or something and he has access to a decision maker and he's, uh, he's willing to follow your taskings, well, you just sell it, tell him, uh, you know, next time you're talking to the prime minister or the defense minister, I want you to tell him this, that you learned in confidence. That doesn't cost much of anything. And the payoffs... I think are probably wildly variant. In other words, some may work very, very well and perhaps unexpectedly. Others you think are going to work probably, you know, fall flat. So it's like, um, you know, uh, nothing risk, nothing gained. Uh, it is not a huge risk involved in putting forward uh, some of these crazy thoughts and suggestions. And if, some, if, all, if nine out of ten fail, but one catches fire, well, you're you know, you've made a, a tremendous investment. So I think uh, I think it, it's a it's a key part of their foreign policy apparatus and structure, and they wouldn't continue to invest in it unless they thought it was well worth the effort. Yeah, and I suppose in a way it's more effective than open warfare as well. Well, yes. I mean, you know, we live in an age and a half for decades where. Open warfare is is is, uh, is extraordinarily dangerous in terms of the possibility of escalation, and diplomacy, of course, is uh, you know a lot of uh, uh, hopes and wishes, if you will. So this is an intermediate area where they can be aggressive while still having plausible deniability. You know, like well, it wasn't we didn't say that or we didn't do this. It was uh, the, this person who's actually working under their direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, how did how did they sort of spread this disinformation? What was the sort of techniques they were using to do it to kind of create that plausible deniability? Sure. Well, they would have certain uh, outlets that were known as having been set up by KGB. One was famous. One was called the Patriot in India. It was an English language uh, publication. You know, tiny readership. But uh, if you surface a story there, like they did the AIDS disinformation story, then you can report it in the Soviet press, as they did in the Literature and Gazeta, and then Novosti Press Agency, which was their foreign uh, news and features agency at the time, can carry that throughout the world. Any any country where somebody subscribes to Novosti, which would have been their equivalent of AP or UPI, would see this kind of story. And they could use it if they had a, uh, an agent in a, in, a, in a country, say in Mexico or somewhere, 
uh, and his KGB handler had told him, you know, I want you to print this disinformation story. No, and there's a, uh, a story alleging that in Novacy. That's the perfect cover. If his boss complains about, uh, you know, why are you running the story? He says, well, it was, it was in Novacy. He's not going to say, I'm doing this at KGB direction. So, and in this day and age, of course, it's, it's, it's even uh, the information apparatus they have at their disposal is much more widespread. You have RT, which used to be known as Russia Today, and some people don't know that, that RT stands for Russia Today. They, they think it's just an independent news agency. You have Sputnik, which used to be the voice of Russia, and you have all sorts of possibilities through the Internet uh, to spread stories that were simply impossible to do a couple decades ago. In the, in the old days... Uh, they used to surface a lot of forgeries because they, they had a problem how to get a story into the Western press. So they'd, they'd make a forgery, which sometimes were, were quite good, sometimes uh, not perfect uh, technically. They'd send it to a newspaper and say, you know, thought you ought to know about this and hope that it was published. Well, you know, that was a hit or miss type of business and fa fairly labor intensive. Now they can simply put something on RT, Sputnik, or any one of a, di a dozen different uh, media platforms, and it goes out in the West, and there's this perception again in, in today's world that we're not in a Cold War anymore. You know, before uh, Larry King would have never appeared on Radio Moscow. I mean, it would just would have been unthinkable. Or, uh, But now it's, yeah, RT, I'll, I'll go up here, there, Al Jazeera. You know, there's all sorts of different platforms. So you have a much more forgiving and sort of interpenetrated media environment where they can get their their uh, word out uh, many, many different ways. Yeah. Well, can you give us some examples of the um, Soviet active measures that you worked against? I know you've, you've involved quite a few. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, the, uh, well, the AIDS disinformation campaign was the most prominent and probably the most successful. Uh, it had actually started it with this uh, obscure article in The Patriot in 1984, but it sort of didn't go anywhere for a couple of years until... 80, late 1986 when they picked it up in the Soviet press. And they used uh, basically three different quote-unquote experts. One was Jacob Siegel. He was an East German, you know, biologist, scientist. And he came up with this pseudo-scientific gobbledygook about how AIDS had been created in a laboratory, uh, and which made no scientific sense whatsoever. But, you know, how many people are scientists and, and can decipher this? And then there was uh, Robert Strecker, who was an American. He was a conspiracy theorist. He thought the uh, United States and the Soviet Union were combining to use the World Health Organization to launch some sort of bio-warfare attack. This is just, you know, in the realm of nonsense. But they ignored his criticism of the Soviet Union and said, well, he thinks the United States is about to launch a bio-warfare attack. So they, they edited very carefully. And there was a third... John Seale, who's a British, uh, a similar conspiracy theorist, and they edited him as well. But, you, you, you know, if you play it right, you can say, you know, German, uh, East German, but you just say German, British, and American scientists, which they're not, uh, uh, believe this. And uh, it was actually repeated by Dan Rather on the CBS Evening News in March of 1987 in more or less those terms, sourced to uh, Novosti. So, but the thing was, AIDS was such a, um, uh, a horrifying and mysterious disease when it first appeared that people had all these fears about it. And they, you know, their mind just went to excess. Like, who created this? Well, 
you know, nature created it, as we learned eventually. It came from a West African chimpanzee, probably crossed the line from simian immunovirus to human immunovirus, probably in the 20s, the 1920s or 1930s. Scientists have, you know, analyzed the changes in the DNA and then worked backwards on how often mutations occur. And they said it's most likely when it happened. But at the time, nobody knew that. And they thought, you know, somebody must have, could have created it. Well, you know, there was no, apparently genetic engineering can't create such a thing. And there was certainly no genetic engineering back in the 1920s and 1930s. But nobody knew that uh, when it first appeared in the late 70s and 80s. So there was all this fear and conspiracy theories. And, um, and some people postulated at that time, turned out to be true, that the origin was in Africa. And then some of these reports, one by Jacob Siegel, surfaced at a uh, United Nations uh, conference in Africa. And they took the line, the West is blaming Africa for AIDS, but it's really their fault. Well, you know, at a primitive level, that works. But nobody was blaming. This was simply a question of where did the disease come from and how can we learn more about it so we can better uh, cure it and deal with it. So it was a scientific uh, determination that people made that was turned into a political weapon by the Russians. So I would say the AIDS disinformation story was their most effective um, in, in terms of getting people to blame the United States. You know, and, and it's peculiar. One of the things they said was, it was invented at the Pentagon at Fort Detrick. Well, Fort Detrick is, is about 40, 50 miles from Washington, and it's where we have a biological defense program biological warfare defense. The United States gave up all its biological weapons back in around 1970. I think we signed the, the protocol in 1969 and got rid of them in the early 70s. But we still have a very small program of biological defense in case a weapon, a bio, biological weapon is used against us. We want to have some defenses, uh, for goodness sakes. So this is what they research up at Fort Detrick. But of course, you can get people to suspect all sorts of things. So they said, oh, it was in, you know, this certain building, I forgot what it was, 147 or something. So we went up there and we talked to people. And, you know, this particular building they talked about happened to be a little bungalow with screen doors on the front. But uh, you know, they can, you know, the, the details don't matter because uh, who, who can check them? So uh, it's, it's quite curious sometimes. But they uh, they worked hard. They did their homework and uh, collected everything they could in the open media to try to cobble together the story. And uh, my old boss, Herb, used to say it's like taking a button and sewing a coat on it. You know, it's uh, taking little pieces and then making this huge, crazy story uh, Ill with, with little details that uh, sparkle and shine. And that AIDS story, I mean, it, it still exists in conspiracy oh, circles sure. today. It's, it's still very popular. Absolutely. It hasn't gone away. It you know, you can beat these things back, but uh, they're always going to find some receptivity. And another one that the the Soviets did not start but certainly picked up on was what I call the baby parts uh, rumor. And, and this started, you know, I think spontaneously as some sort of urban legend. But the story, would, and which started in Central America, went that Americans were going, you know, to Central America, Latin America, adopting children and then chopping them up for organ transplants. I mean, it's just a horrible story. And, it, it, you know, it doesn't bear any scrutiny. There's absolutely no evidence anything like this ever occurred. But it's sort of the kind of horrifying story that 
people hear it and they just, you know, they don't think about whether it's true or not. They don't, they don't examine it calmly. Instead, it sort of hits, goes right in and hits a hot button in people's minds and activates the horror response. And they say, oh, my God, that's terrible, without thinking clearly whether it's true or not. And I talk to organ transplant people here, and they say, you know, when you do an organ transplant, you have to have like 15, 20 people in the room. It's an enormously complex operation. You know, you don't do it in some back room. And it's, you know, if you don't have the right uh, compatibilities with all these proteins, it's like if you got a blood transfusion that was the wrong blood type, well, you're going to die. Well, the organ transplantation is even more complicated because uh, many more things have to match. So, and then every time we looked at it, of course, there's no, uh, absolutely no truth to this. But again, it's one of those stories, it, uh, it won a variant of that story, not the exact story, but a variant of that story won the most prestigious journalism prize in France in 1994 and in Spain in 1995. And it's just, you know, you're just amazed that an untrue story, which has been repeatedly knocked down, I mean, I spent, you know, probably couple thousand hours working on this story starting in 1987 would still win these awards but uh, you know that's what happens sometimes i suppose also you have the whole element of where people if, if somebody accuses the american government of like you know stealing baby parts and things and then you as the state department say well this isn't true there's an element of people say well you're going to have to say that aren't you well you always get that but on the other hand uh you know i put together a you know a summary of this and if, if there was a journalist going out and they happened to be directed to us, uh, I would send them the background. And a lot of times they'd say, oh, okay, yeah, there's no story here. You're right. I can see because you, you very transparently uh, summarize exactly what was researched and exactly uh, what the issues are and how people can check it. And this is before hot links, of course, but now you, you do it that way. So, yes, some people will disbelieve the U.S. government. That's, that's always going to be the case. But on the other hand, we still retain a certain amount of credibility with, uh, with audiences uh, and journalists around the world. Yeah, no, brilliant. There's another story that um, is very popular even still today in conspiracy theory circles, which is Operation Gladio. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that one? Gladio is, is very complicated. Because there was a real Operation Gladio, and this was what they call a stay-behind network. In other words, during World War II, uh, there, of course, there were resistance movements all over Europe to, to the Nazi occupation. And, you know, lots of people paid a fearsome price for resisting the Nazis. Well, after World War II ended, and we sort of segued immediately into the Cold War, uh, military planners began saying, well, you know, Supposing there's a Soviet occupation of Western Europe, it will generate resistance again, like the Nazi occupation did. Wouldn't it be better to plan ahead for this and to recruit some networks of people who are sort of, you know, yes, I would be a member of the resistance if it came to that, and bury some arm caches and whatnot so that people are not starting from zero and you don't lose as many lives. So this was a very... Um, very rational, sensible military planning program. But it was secret. You know, it was not uh, anything that was advertised. And I first became aware of it around, around 1990. It suddenly became a huge issue in the European press. And it had gotten, uh, it had gotten um, uh, changed a bit. You know, uh, 
some of the things, you know, the real information, which I've just explained, they would add some, some disinformation. Well, you know, these people in these stay-behind networks are terrorists, or they were responsible for this terrorist incident or that terrorist incident. And it became very murky because, you know, it's one thing if a story is clearly not true, but if you have to say, now, here's a very complex story, and, you know, 40% of it is true and 60% of it is not true, uh, it just becomes very complicated to explain. So it was, it was, frankly, very frustrating for me because I knew a lot of the claims were false. But in messaging, uh, you know, you you can be sophisticated if you're talking to someone on a one-on-one. But if you're sending something out to all the embassies overseas and people will use it, um, you know, it has to be cleaner. It has to be a little more clear-cut. So, uh, you know, that was an example of truth mixed with facts. I mean, truth mixed with lies, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it led to, uh, I remember there's a documentary um, in the mid-90s about it, mm-hmm. and the man who made yeah. it, we'll probably mention him later, because um, he also made a film about the Lockerbie bombings that we can talk about a bit later. Oh, well. uh, Alan Frankovich? That's the guy, yeah, yeah. He's an interesting yeah. character. <laughs> but we'll, we'll come back to him. <laughs> um, there's some other things that the CIA and the American government have been accused of. Um, like There's the Jonestown Massacre. That was another interesting story. That yeah, that's... That was kind of bizarre. That was under Gorbachev. I mean, um, this was 1986, the era of Glasnost, supposedly. And uh, in the Soviet Union, there's this book, uh, Death of Jonestown, Crime of the CIA, uh, which was published by one of their, uh, liter- you know, one of their law legal uh, publishing houses, and just, just you know, full of, uh, full of lies. But what was interesting, and what many people didn't realize it, Jim Jones, who created Jonestown, this cult leader, this church cult leader, was actually a communist. And I remember, uh, you know, when Jonestown happened, I can't remember the exact year, uh, but I know I was down here in Washington and reading about it, riding on the bus, and all the stuff that communist literature that they found at his um, at his camp in Guyana. So, but that was not widely known. So uh, the image was that he was a, a you know, a church leader, a cult leader, uh, this kind of thing. It wasn't, but the People's Temple. There's sort of a clue right there. I mean, that's that's communist, communist speak. The People's Temple, and um, Jones had, in fact, written to the Soviet embassy in Ghana, saying, "I want to, me and my my commune, my community, want to emigrate to the Soviet Union." And uh, I think there was 900 and something people, and the Soviet embassy. I don't think they. They really knew what to do with this guy. I don't know that they responded, or they certainly didn't respond positively, but they had this letter. So then the story was that the disinformation specialist made up is that Jones wanted, and his, and his community wanted to emigrate to the Soviet Union, and this would have been such a tremendous blow to U.S. prestige that the CIA decided to, to kill them all, which is, you know, just ridiculous, of course, but... Um, the whole thing was rather unbelievable. I mean, he wound up, it was, it was billed as a mass suicide. But if you read the accounts, Jones and his henchmen were going around with the poison Kool-Aid and forcing people to drink it. And if you didn't drink it, well, they'd take you out into the bush and shoot you. So it was more of a forced, uh, you know, death uh, uh, murder than a mass suicide. Maybe some people willingly took it because they believed him, but... Uh, it was, it, the whole thing was very disturbing, and it was very disturbing to see this book 
especially when the Soviet Union is supposed to be turning over a new leaf under Gorbachev. There's another interesting story. Um, is it a gentleman called Philip Agee who wrote a book called Inside the... Agee. Agee, sorry, yeah, Philip Agee. Bill Agee, yeah. That's it. And he wrote this book Inside the Company that became very popular in Europe. Yeah, he was a, a, someone who'd been at CIA, and I don't remember the details. I don't know if he was... Uh, he was somehow disaffected. He became, you know, uh, somebody who, who thought, you know, I've got to get out of this this organization, and he became very anti-CIA. So, and he had his own views, of course. Everybody's entitled to their own views. But the uh, the Soviets, once they noticed him, and he was, you know, quite a big deal publicly, they they realized they could use him. Apparently, um, I, I I don't know remember all the circumstances, but there had been an attempt, or he was interested in talking with the Soviets, but I believe they turned him away. But he was recruited by the Cubans, and all this came out after um, it was a, a defector from the KGB, Vasily Mitrokin. He was their archivist. He was an archivist for, for years and years and years. And from between 1972 and 1984, he oversaw uh, the moving and selection of the archives when they moved from downtown Moscow out to the suburbs. And he brought, uh, he was uh, disaffected as well, and he was taking extensive notes as he was reviewing these documents and hiding, hiding them in his pockets, his, his you know, his, his shoes and whatnot. And he had like 25,000 pages by the end of these 12 years that he um, was able to get exfiltrated out after he defected in 1992. So he, um, uh, he had a lot of documents about AG, and AG, you know, was you know, this is what he believed. Okay. But the KGB used him, through the, and the Cubans used him, and they cooperated, of course, with KGB. And I remember having a, there's a defector. I used to work with an organization that worked with Soviet defectors, and I was talking to one of them, and he said, oh, yeah, we used to send him stuff. And I'd say, well, you were in Service A, active measures. No, I was in counterintelligence. But we knew if we sent him stuff on CIA that he would publish it. So you could have that sort of arrangement, or somebody who's actively working, and he was actively cooperating with them to expose uh, to expose real CIA offers, and also some of them uh, were phony as well. But this led to um, the assassination of uh, one of our CIA officials in Greece, Richard Welch, in um, the late 70s. And then it became, the U.S. Congress passed a law, informally called the AG Bill, which made it a crime to publish the name of a CIA official because... This is, I mean, this is just what he was doing. It was a very, very effective way to hurt uh, uh, the CIA. Uh, but once they made it illegal, it, it changed things somewhat. But AG continued, and he had a publication called Covert Action Information Bulletin, which he published here in the United States, and they had French and, I think, German uh, counterparts. And this was a steady, um, uh, just a regular venue for Soviet disinformation, although I think he was the only one uh, at that publication who was actively working with the Soviets. The other people were, you know, they um, they believed this kind of stuff. They were doing it out of their own convictions. They were not agents of a foreign power, whereas AG was. Yeah, yeah. That's a big difference. So you kind of get these sort of fellow travelers, don't you? I don't know what the term is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, there's some other interesting conspiracy theories, like... Um, fluoridated drinking water is one that comes up a lot, isn't it? Yeah, well, that was mostly in the 50s. That's, 
that's before my time. And I think that's, uh, those would be Americans who are, who are very anti-communist and anti-central government. You know, there's a strong anti-central government streak in the United States, which uh, still manifests itself, but in the, in the 50s was suspicion about uh, fluoridated water being a communist conspiracy. So I don't think we can blame that one on, on the Soviets. No, okay. Maybe Doctor Strange Love, possibly. <laughs> um, what about the uh, the moon landings? Was another one that kind of well, uh... you know, again, that's that's kind of it's non political. I really, I mean, it's just, and if you think about it, I mean, it's it's really quite extraordinary that we went to the to the moon with uh, the technology we had in 1969, which you know any any smartphone would put to shame these days. Uh, so it's quite an extraordinary achievement, and some people, you know, just didn't find it believable. But that's, you know, that's I don't know. There's this, this there's this suspicion of authority that people have, and uh, you know, any, anything that happens in the press these days, within within hours, if not minutes, somebody's claiming it really didn't happen. It's kind of kind of silly and predictable, but but that's the way it is. So the moon landings, you know, I mean, clearly we went to the moon. There were um, there's they left mirrors there you can uh, or reflective devices, so I didn't spend a lot of time on this uh, because it really didn't have any, and it's mo a lot of it's a uh, domestic American, um, you know sort of conspiracy theory and it doesn't have any anti-government leanings. I mean I worked for many years for the U.S. Information Agency, now for the State Department, so we're really concerned with things that. Uh, hurt U.S. national interests and are generally in the political or perhaps military sphere. And all the years that I've worked on these things, you know, it's it, we're responding largely to the needs of the embassies. You know, there's a, a story in this country or that country. Quite often they, they, of course, go from many, many countries, but sometimes they're just specific to one country. And the people at the embassy, you know, they're busy. They have a lot of real work to do. They don't have time to chase down these nonsense stories. So I would be the guy in Washington chasing down these stories, doing the research, trying to put all my findings in a very succinct, plain, clear communication, sending it back to the embassies. And then they make the call. Is this worth going to the publication and complaining, or do we just sort of let it go? But that was the basic mechanism that was and, and is still in place. In a way, to use popular culture references, you're almost the X-Files before the X-Files, weren't you? <laughs> you know, I've never watched the X-Files, it's funny. <laughs> but uh, but it's, been, it's been very, very interesting work, I must say. No, I bet, I bet. Actually, uh, one other thing that came up, um, I was looking at, was there was, there was a lot of um, criticism of Star Wars back in the 80s, which was, I think was the, the project to potentially shoot down intercontinental ballistic yeah. missiles. Is there anything about that you'd like to chat about? Uh, you know, nothing. Uh, it was a little before my time. I started in, yeah. in 87. They were, of course, they, Soviet press and all their publications criticized, you know, SDI enormously. I mean, they were, they were, they were horribly scared of it. And it, it rendered a lot of their huge investment in missiles uh, would have rendered it obsolete. And I think myself that it, it, it led to their, um, reforms under Gorbachev, the perestroika, they simply realized they couldn't keep up with us. And uh, they had to do something quite different. And, and this led to what I call conciliatory active measures. Under Gorbachev, they were trying to, and Georgi Arbatov, the head of the USA Institute, says, we have a secret weapon. We're going to eliminate the image of the enemy. 
and they tried to make all these, uh, you know, we've become just like you. We think just like you. Uh, today is the first day of the rest of our relationship. And therefore, you don't have to worry about us. And uh, you know, specifically, you don't have to continue your unbelievable military buildup and you can get rid of Star Wars. So this was a uh, this was a propaganda line. This was an active measure. And uh, but, of course, to make it real, they had to put some uh, uh, actions behind their words and uh, the actions that they took, which were refraining from violence and putting down independence and movements in Eastern Europe led to the unraveling of the Soviet system. So um, it was quite a, a fascinating time to see them scrambling for uh, totally new themes, which were different than their old themes, and then the whole system collapsing uh, because they, um, uh, they're caught between a rock and a hard spot. They couldn't crack down or they'd ruin their good image in the West. And uh, if they didn't maintain their good image in the West, they were going to just go on, you know, be defeated in the Cold War and uh, – and, and they didn't want that. So they tried to, to have it both ways, and everything slipped between their fingers. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for all that. Um, are there any other stories or cases that you could talk about that we haven't touched upon? Well, sure. There, there are others. One very interesting one is depleted uranium. Uh, and this started after the first Gulf War in 1991. There was actually a, a, uh, a thing in The Independent on Sunday, I believe, in November of 1981, and they interviewed someone from the British, uh, I think it's the Atomic Energy Commission, if I may not have the, the name right, but this was a, an engineer, and he says, if you took all the, and depleted uranium, I should explain, is an extremely uh, dense uh, metal that's used in U.S. munitions, specifically in the rounds that are used by our fighter, bom- by our fighter bombers in, in killing enemy tanks. Uh, depleted uranium is 1.7 times as dense as lead, if you can imagine. If you held a piece of lead, you can imagine something almost twice that, that heavy per, uh, per mass. It's quite extraordinary. And it has particular properties that make it a superb tank killer. It's self-sharpening. It doesn't blunt like a lot of other metals would. It's sort of uh, unbelievably self-sharpening as it penetrates. And then it's pyrophoric. It explodes. It, you know, penetrates the inside of the tank. It's going to explode and kill everyone. So it's got, it's it's like the ideal metal for making a tank killing munition. And we used these during the Gulf War. I think it was the first time it had been used in a war. And uh, the thing is, you know, they uh, every once in a while they hit a tank, but usually when you're firing these things in war, you get a very low hit rate. And most of them will, will in, in Iraq, you know, they'll go into the sand. They'll go uh, a meter or more into the sand, and they're they're sort of buried. They become part of the environment. But people, um, this this uh, British Atomic Energy Commission uh, person said, well, if you took all the munitions that were fired in the Gulf War and sort of then, you know, ground them up and, uh, you know, gave each person a couple teaspoons of each, you could kill, you know, I don't know what it was, half a million people or something like that. So this is, talk about a theoretical calculation you know i mean 90 something percent of the ones that were fired are buried uh uh forever lost in the desert sands and the other ones you know you say it's simply not a realistic calculation but it's a great headline you know and then people got all hysterical about depleted uranium and the danger it felt and it was quite interesting because i i i went to you know this has been studied extensively by the world health organization by nato by different and I went and I looked at all the different studies, and I got, and all of them 
concluded there was this was no more depleted uranium was no more dangerous than any other heavy metal uh, would be. Um, and but yet people were hysterical about. It. And I was remember I was talking with my boss about this. And I said, yeah, this study and that study. And he said, yeah, you can have all those studies, but I sh- I wouldn't want to have one of those on my desk. And uh, and I was like, uh, what's going on here? Here's a guy. He knows I've researched this thoroughly. He knows I'm reliable. I do my homework. And I'm telling him then it's not dangerous, but he's still scared. And then it immediately hit me. It's all the unconscious associations we have with the word uranium. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, and I don't know about you, but when I think of the word uranium and I do a word association, I think atomic bomb, yeah. Hiroshima, uh, fallout, radioactive fallout, uh, cancer, birth defects, all these horrible things are very, very strongly associated with the word uranium. And yet it's sort of just slightly below our consciousness. But if you call attention to it, of course, you say, yeah, that's, that's what we think about. And depleted well, it means it's been depleted of some of its radioactivity. It's um, only about half or 60% as uh, radioactive as, as normal uranium, which is actually not that radioactive at all. The uranium is found in nature. But it's these associations that people have. So I realized then that uh, unconscious associations can trump facts. You know, they can just overwhelm facts that, uh, you know, and I've been in this business for a long time and I've seen, you you see people ignore facts that that they don't like. I mean, they simply, if they want to believe that the Twin Towers came down in a controlled demolition, you know, it's going to be very hard to convince someone who, who believed that for some emotional reason that it didn't happen. And in fact, there was one case. On the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, the BBC did a special program, and they they brought over one of these, you know, 9-11 so-called truthers, conspiracy, from England to the United States. And then they, they had there, they had all the people he would have wanted to talk to. They had the guy who was controlling air traffic in the Northeast on that day. Uh, they had people who were demolition experts who knew all the work that had to be involved in preparing a demolition to blow a building. They had people from the intelligence community. They had, uh, they had architects. So this guy spent an entire day, and he would say, well, what about this? And they'd say, well, that's an interesting question. But, you know, in fact, it takes this long to secure these demolitions, to attach it to the, the structural metal. You know, you'd have to have people in there removing sheetrock and stuff. It simply couldn't be done in secret. And they go through all the different uh, conspiracy theories he thought of. And at the end of the day, he said, you know, you're right. Uh, I, there wasn't a conspiracy, but it took that level of effort to convince him. And then, of course, he went home and he talked to his, his buddies. And he said, yeah, I've just been over to the States. And here's what I learned. And they went, oh, oh okay, <laughs> right. You know, they didn't believe him because they hadn't been through this sort of total immersion themselves. So, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I love... I love facts. I really, you know, I love I love this job because I love finding out what's true and what isn't true. And you actually get a little better at it the more you do it. And it's very interesting. Sometimes you're surprised. Sometimes you're not surprised. But I, I have to admit that the facts don't carry the case in many instances. I mean, you have to you have to be totally 100 percent committed to finding out what the facts are and explaining them honestly. But that's not enough for many people. But 
that's just human nature. We can't uh, change that. Yeah, yeah, no, very true. Well, back into um, further into the sort of world of disinformation. Um, Russia was not alone, was it, in, in um, kind of uh, putting out disinformation about the United States. You've also got organizations like terrorist groups and also you have other countries as well who've been putting out information about America. We mentioned it earlier, um, the Lockerbie bombings, one example, where um, Libya, I think, engaged in a very in a PR campaign to try and dissuade people from thinking they were responsible for it. Do you, do you want to talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I did uh, some work on that, on um, uh, the Frankovich film. Uh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but the Libyans were very active on this front. The Iraqis... Uh, we're very active. Basically, any dictatorship that, uh, you know, is not responsive to uh, the will of the people, you know, it depends on the, on the regime, of course, but they're more than willing to, uh, to uh, you know, lie if it serves their own self-interest. And, of course, Libya was in, you know, uh, they'd gotten caught red-handed, for goodness sakes. I mean, the, the plane that Pan Am 103 that came down was supposed to explode or anticipated it would explode over the ocean. There'd be no evidence. But I think there were some flight delays that came down over Scotland, and there was this unbelievably thorough investigation that uh, led to the, the timer and the different people who were involved on the Libyan side. So they had every reason in the world to try to blame everyone and anyone. And th- that's my recollection of the, the Frankovich film is that it was sort of incoherent. You didn't know what's the main point they're trying to make here. Who did it? And there wasn't a main point. It was just like, well, these people could have done it, and the Iranians could have done it, and these people could have done it. It was just trying to throw dust in people's eyes in, yeah. in, any, in any way possible. And it still gets referenced today. It's the, the Maltese double-cross, because when... Um, ah, right. Yeah, it came up a, a few years ago when... Um, is it... Oh, oh, I've forgotten his name. Is it Al Magrahi, the, the key suspect. Yes, um, Magrahi was, was yes, given was, clemency. That's it. And then, and then certain articles uh, cropped up, um, you know, in most papers and things about, well, did Libya do it? And then he had one of the um, the fathers, one of the victims, who was quite convinced that McGrahi didn't do it, and and so on. Right. Yeah. 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 So, no, it's kind of, look. It's a it's a very very complicated, very circumstantial uh, case that can be made in public, as opposed to what we might know from uh, intelligence sources. So I can see where, you know, people could have their doubts, but uh, we were quite confident, the U.S. government uh, was quite confident in its uh, conclusions that it was Libya that was involved. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I know like in the Middle East, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about America. I mean, America gets blamed for, for a lot of things in the Middle East. I don't know if you've had any experiences with those at all, have you? Well, yes and no. I mean, some of these can be quite difficult. Like, the most popular one is the U.S. created ISIS. Well, this is just total nonsense. I mean, you know, these guys are a sworn enemy. Uh, you know, we're working as hard as we can to take out their leaders and prevent people from joining us. And the idea that somehow we're secretly behind this is just, I, I don't know, it's, it's just not in the realm of the rational. And there's, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's some some uh, conspiracy theories that have some elements that you can check, you know, can say, well, this did or did not happen. And if it did not happen, it means there's no conspiracy. Well, this whole idea that we're created ISIS secretly by some sort of, you know, magical uh, uh, venue, and they never say exactly who, it's just nonsense. But, you know, it, it, it can be very difficult 
to argue against because of the lack of specifics. And sometimes they do have specifics. They say, oh, Senator McCain met with this ISIS leader. Well, it was a picture of him with a Syrian, you know, Democratic leader. It was not the ISIS guy. So you can kind of knock that stuff down. But encountering disinformation, you need to go after the specifics. The general allegation has to depend on a number of specific things happening. If you can show those specific things did not happen, then you knock down the general allegation. When you have an allegation that's sort of without any specificity, it becomes more difficult to counter. Yeah. Yeah, no, I bet. Well, I mean, one thing we, we talked about a little bit before, this 9-11 conspiracy theories have become very popular since um, since the terrorist attacks of September the 11th. And um, conspiracy theories used to be a fringe thing, but now they've almost become yeah. sort of mainstream. Why do you think those theories are so popular today? Well, that's that's very speculative, and, and I really don't know. But I would say one thing is the Internet. Um, before, you know, you had the mainstream press, and you had editors, and if there's a crazy story, it was just simply not going to get into the mainstream press. I mean, you might have some fringe publications, but they got next to nothing in terms of circulation. Well, now on the Internet, if you get some crazy story and it goes viral, it, you know, it can go all over in a matter of hours. So you've lost the, um, the editorial function where people take a step back and say, well, wait a minute, is this really true or not? Before we publish, let's, let's determine whether it's true or not. You've, you've lost that function. Uh, from mu much of the communications that people pay attention to, they increasingly get their, their news from Facebook and various websites. And, you know, in a broader sense, it may be that people are, you know, in our modern globalized society, people feel sort of out of control. You know, certainly if you, if you don't have a job or, you know, uh, everything is changing all around you, it would be natural to feel out of control. And I think some of these conspiracy theories are rooted in a sort of a, a need to postulate some sort of control. You know, though, there's nothing more terrifying at one level than a random world in which, you know, anything could happen at any time. You can't be hypervigilant all the time. You say, oh, you know, there's this small group of evil people that are, you know, plotting in secret to control events in this, you know, superhumanly competent fashion. That and, and I know about it. You know, I'm one of the few people in the world who sees through the, the charade and the facade. Well, that gives you a sense of control. Uh, it's, it's nonsense, but, uh, you know, I'm not a side. Look, this is all just idle speculation, but that may have something to do with it. But I think more important is the fact that uh, we live in uh, the Internet age where anybody can say anything. Yeah, and have you have you seen the evidence of like uh, foreign powers um, today exploiting these kind of contemporary conspiracy theories? Oh, absolutely. The Russians—it's uh, like they vacuum cleanered up every conspiracy theorist in the West and have them on RT and Sputnik and some of their different publications. I mean, this is their, as best I can tell, they've made a concerted effort to target the quote-unquote alternative media space in the West. And uh, this goes back to some of the ways, you know, they do things. When uh, Ladislav Bitman, who I mentioned earlier, who was an active measures professional in Czechoslovakia, he was asked in an interview uh, back in the 80s, it was before a Reagan-Gorbachev uh, summit, you know, if you were going to do some disinformation, how would you do it? And he'd say, he'd say you know, one of the first things they do is they look for the organic 
um, responses to an event in the West. And they look, you know, well, some big event happened. There were X, Y, and Z responses, and we can use X and Y. And they fit our, they fit our purposes. But they're truly um, honest, homegrown responses from the West because we saw them there first. And let's just reinforce that. So in the same way, they're probably looking at these conspiracy theorists, think these guys are crazy, but they come from Western societies. They probably understand how people in the West think. They, you know, have a certain following. And if we reinforce what they're doing, it will help to weaken the West, but in a way, in a way that we know will find a certain amount of receptivity, as opposed to people in Moscow trying to totally uh, make up stuff from scratch. You know, let's, uh, let's use what's already out there. So they use these people, uh, I mean, they're just very serious about it. They do it in a very disciplined way, and it's, uh, it's disturbing. Yeah, and, and is, is in, in your opinion, is Russia, the Russian intelligence service is making a concerted effort to engage in what we call active measures today? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's absolutely no question. This is a standard part of their repertoire. They're not going to abandon it. They believe it's, it can be very effective. And look at, um, you know, we've talked about disinformation, but when I, when I was reading that book, and <laughs> go back to the Ladislav Bitman book, where he talked about the evil doctor, the very next sentence, which I hadn't paid great attention to until I looked at it a few months back, said, you know, they also will take any intelligence uh, clandestinely uh, collected intelligence information and sift through it, what they used to do, to use inactive measures and press placements. And I saw some of this in the late 80s. I saw references to cables that I'd seen and uh, one that was uh, sent to the FBI. And that was before I realized Robert Hansen was working on Russian counterintelligence that FBI was a, was a KGB or a GRU agent, a Russian agent. So so they have a long tradition of using secret information in a public way. And now this is, of course, just multiplied by a thousand by their ability to hack, you know, use spear phishing and to hack into various people's accounts. And you, don't, you can use false information, but, you know, God knows uh, there's enough embarrassing things in almost anyone's email that they wouldn't want the whole world to know about that if you just simply release that, you can discredit people. So this is active measures. It may involve disinformation. It may not involve disinformation. But this is clearly active measures, and they made a concerted effort as our intelligence committee judge to influence our campaign, uh, presidential campaign, and congressional campaigns as well, according to the New York Times. And, of course, they've done the same thing uh, in France and uh, can be expected to do it in any uh, election that they see of significance in the future. So there's no question that uh, this is a main part of their repertoire these days, perhaps more important than it's ever been. Yeah. And in this age where people are not sure what sources of information to trust, do you, ha do you have any advice for people who are unsure what to believe when they come across sort of inflammatory stories online that suggest possible conspiracies and more? Yeah, I mean, life is generally less exciting than we imagine it to be. So, you know, if you, there's this vast conspiracy that's postulated, it's usually not true. But the best thing to do is to just check. And anyone can do this with Google. Uh, you know, check some of the – look for specific allegations. And if there's a specific allegation, you can copy and paste whatever it is, a key line of text, somebody's name, do a Google search. It's amazing what you can find just in a few minutes. So this is not beyond people's capability 
Um, but you know, it takes it takes a little work, and and a lot of people are are lazy, and and uh, some people just want to believe whatever it is they've read. But it can it can be done, and if you find that it it goes back to a known conspiracy theory website or a RT or a Russian site, well, that's enough in my book to disbelieve it. It goes back to a legitimate source, and of course, there's always going to be debate about what it's a legitimate source, then uh, you're much better off. Yeah, yeah. One other thing I was going to ask you as well was, are there any, because um, listeners are probably going to want to look into this beyond our chat today, and I was wondering if there were any books or things that you could recommend to people so they can get a better idea of what active measures actually are, and especially during the Cold War and things like that. Sure. Um, actually, one of the best, I, I think the best single source is a paper. Uh, it's not a book, and it's by the um, defector I mentioned from the KGB archives, Vasily Mitrokhin, and it's M-I-T-R-O-K-H-I-N. So he's got a paper, it's called KGB, Active Measures in Southwest Asia, 1980 to 1982. And if you read that, there's what I love about it is no analysis. It's all raw data. He says these were the things that were approved 19, in the, that time period by the KGB for active measures. For example, um, uh, right after the you know the Soviet Union had, of course, invaded Afghanistan in 1979, and there was immediate resistance from the Mujahideen, who were based largely in Pakistan and were eventually uh, you know uh, backed by the United States, China, Britain, and other countries. Um, so uh, what did they do? They're you know in a serious situation. So he says, there's a number of things in that paper, I remember several of which, one of them when they said, tell, um, tell the Pakistanis, you know, use an agent to tell the Pakistani leadership that the U.S. Is, is, doesn't have any faith in the Pakistani regime, which is Zia al-Haq. He was a military dictator at the time, and they're going to abandon him like, just like they abandoned the Shah in 1978. So can you imagine if you're the Pakistani leadership and you're told this confidentially, you're thinking... Oh my God, are they going to, you know, they did, they abandoned the Shah. Are they going to abandon me? And how, you know, do, do I ask the U.S. government if they're going to abandon me? Of course they're going to deny it. So that could be very, I don't, you know, we don't know how effective these things were, which are believed or not, but we do know that these were the, the active measures that they intended to carry out. Another one was to tell, um, tell, tell Iran that the United States is now, you know, uh, you know, so close to Pakistan and, in fighting the Russians in Afghanistan, that they're going to, uh, Pakistanis are going to let the U.S. establish a base in Baluchistan. Now, Baluchistan is a southern province between Iran and Pakistan. And, and the Iranians, of course, who are, you know, uh, conceived of us as their deadly enemy at the time, would have gone bananas if they thought we were going to build a big air base near their territory. Totally false story. They said, tell the Indians, tell Indira Gandhi, that the U.S. and Pakistan are now so friendly that... Uh, U.S. is going to not worry if Pakistan goes nuclear. We're going to stop worrying about that, stop trying to prevent them from going nuclear. And, of course, that would have been India's nightmare that uh, Pakistan would have, uh, you know, gotten nuclear weapons. So they're trying to tell everybody a different lie that sort of hits on their sorest spot, their biggest concern, and, and you know, can't really be checked. I mean, it might be believed, might not be believed, but it's coming through this secret, confidential, you know, hush-hush channel that, you know, uh, it's not clear whether it's true or not. So, 
And this was just three of like, you know, dozens of different uh, active measures that they were undertaking at the time. So I think that's the best single paper. Uh, Mitrokin himself wrote a couple books along with a British uh, historian, uh, Christopher Andrew. Uh, you know, they're, they're long. Yeah, yeah they are. <laughs> they're long. They're, long. <laughs> they're, they're uh they're quite an undertaking if you have the courage to do it, uh, but they are authoritative. Uh, and then the U.S. government put out a number of different reports, 86, 87, and 89 State Department reports. And, and I wrote a couple USIA reports in uh, 88 and 92 that are good, but, but that you're not going to get those at your corner bookstore, although you could find them on the, uh, on, um, you know, on the Internet. And John Barron wrote a couple good books. I can't remember the names now, but he had interviewed Stan Levchenko, who was a KGB major who defected in 1979, and he wrote a couple of good books about uh, that dealt a lot with active measures. Uh, but there, there's a fair amount out there. You know, you you put the name in the search term and you see what comes up. And a lot, there's a lot of a lot of very good work in the 1980s. Brilliant. Can I just ask one very very quick? Um... A bonus question about sure. Yuri Bezmenov, because um, when I was doing my research, Yuri Bezmenov um, popped up a couple of times on YouTube, and I watched one of his um, lectures on Soviet disinformation, and it's like, and I kind of, it was sort of, I suppose my question is, how does one maintain perspective on all this? Because after watching Yuri Bezmenov's lecture, it's almost easy to see active measures everywhere because he was almost yeah. borderline blaming pop music yeah. to right. to right. atheism to being a Soviet sort of ploy. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you, we have to keep a certain amount of proof. I, I don't think I've ever watched that video. I've called it up a couple of times, but I, you know, didn't it didn't follow through. But there is one very famous case of a defector called Anatoly Golitsyn. And he uh, came over, I think, to Finland I uh, could be wrong on that. And he wrote a book in 1984 called New Lies for Old. And if you look through the first uh, 50, 60, 70 pages, it's it's perfect. It's spot on. It's the history of the development of the disinformation apparatus in uh, the Soviet Union. And then he defects in whatever year it was. And then it goes totally cuckoo. Uh, you know, the Sino-Soviet split is not real. Um, well, I'm sorry, you know, uh, that it is real. Uh, and a number of other things. Everything becomes a conspiracy. So it's certainly an occupational hazard. You can, it is quite possible to lose uh, your perspective. But uh, really, I mean, if you just, you know, if you just interact with your fellow man, I mean, most people, you know, are not conspiratorial. They don't live in a, this kind of world. Almost, you know, you have to discount the role of stupidity to to think uh, that that everything is a conspiracy. Uh, I mean, we're not simply people simply aren't that competent to uh, to organize all these conspiracies that work with uh, you know superhuman effectiveness. So uh, you know, uh, you have to keep a perspective. Excellent. Well, well, Todd, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate you chatting with us today. Oh, listeners, my pleasure. is a great deal of fun. Thanks so much. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter, at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening.